Chapter 3. What is Singing? Continued. There is one man who is sufficiently authoritative to help us to a fairly reliable account of Belcanto, vis-a-vis -vis Handel. The words of Robert Franz to Waldmann, quoted by Mr. Fink in Songs and Songwriters, are definite. Quote, if anyone understood the bel canto of the Italians, it was Handel. Here then is firm earth. Handel understood Italian bel canto. A modest, docile study of the man and his work will reveal something of the principles of this school of singing. An author, Apthorpe, in his Opera Past and Present, who is over-fond of Paris fashions, quotes a singer who has made himself famous as a color vocalist. This able actor-singer tells us that, quote, in the days of the schools of the Arte del Bel Canto, the masters did not have to take truth of expression, l'expression juste, into account. For the singer was not required to render the sentiments of the dramatis personae with verisimilitude. All that was demanded of him was harmonious sounds, the bel canto. Footnote. Briefly, one might describe a, quote, harmonious voice as one which flatters the ear but makes no direct appeal to the understanding. End footnote. In other words, this author goes on to say, quote, beauty of vocal tone and beauty of musical plastics were the only recognized elements of emotional expression in singing, beyond that general fervor of delivery which may best be described as an absence of apathy. The emotions themselves were not to be differentiated, and the psychical character of the dramatis personae was not to be taken into account. All the singer had to do was sing and nothing else." End quote. If Handel had been privileged to read these strange pronouncements, one wonders what the result would have been. He could be fairly violent on occasion. The oratorio giant has suffered much from the assumptions of those who have claimed that all that is demanded of Handelian singers is, quote, harmonious sounds, and nothing else. Imagine, if you can, the genial, poetic, imaginative, graphic Handel, who set to music most of the human emotions, from the reflective passion to the thunderclap of the joyous hallelujah in the Messiah, and who certainly sounded some depths in emotional differentiation in Samson. Imagine him being put off with pretty sounds. No differentiation necessary in such opposite roles as those of Manoah and Harapha, in Rejoice Greatly and I Know That My Redeemer Liveth? Could, quote, harmonious tone and musical plastics have enabled Jenny Lind, whose voice was not of the finest character by nature, and Sims Reeves to seize upon the inner meaning of these great Handelian works and to present them as living entities? The vocalists who have added to the mere popularity the power of impressing the thoughtful inner circle have ever been those whose voices reflected thought. Sims Reeves was in many respects an archetype of the really great singer, and what was the key to his position? Certainly not harmoniousness of voice and musical plastics, though his voice was both harmonious and plastic. Well does the present writer remember the manner in which the great tenor discussed the mode of expression which he imagined, and rightly, that a leader of God's host would adopt when calling the people to arms. Quote, he would not, said he, use this kind of voice or tone, imitating the harmonious yet cramped, untrue, white tone of singers of another school. He would sing, sound an alarm thus, 
continued Mr. Reeves, and lo, by a change of mental and physical attitude, he made it clear that he pictured himself as a leader of God's host, the consequence being that this sound and alarm had a good deal of differentiated emotion in it, not operatic nor bizarre, but noble and suited to the scene. Nor did he seem to trouble himself about, quote, harmoniousness of tone and musical plastics, though both were present as the result of spiritual power and fine schooling. He wanted to say, as a man and a musician would say, sound an alarm, and he said it. This little scene is instructive, for if Sims Reeves was anything, he was a Handelian singer. Even as Handel was a master of bel canto, and if Handel's music was anything, it was and is a study in the musical differentiation of emotions. Even Wagner, musician and eloquent actor though he was, never penned a more logical and truthful phrase than the one Handel uses as the musical equivalent to the words, Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. The mere fact that this part of his Messiah is narrative does not weaken the argument. On the contrary, it strengthens it. For the subtle judgment necessary to convey the sympathy in the narrator without becoming unduly personal made the task the more difficult. It was an exercise of differentiated human emotion in the contemplation of divine suffering. Nor may we suppose that Handel would have been satisfied with a less just expression in his operas than he must have demanded in his oratorios. True it is that he made use of the peculiar form of voice, the male soprano, which the times gave him for certain parts. He wanted to attract the public to the operas for which he fought so long and so unsuccessfully, but this was a sop to Cerberus. Handel was a theatrical manager as well as a composer. The student may safely conclude, then, that bel canto meant mastery over the voice. The singers of the 18th and 19th centuries prepared themselves by years of long study to give expression to the music allotted to them. The singers of the 20th century have precisely the same task to negotiate. Up to the date of this writing, it may be said that we prepare ourselves for our tasks mainly by performing them. From the vocal point of view, this idea of mastery over voice, and there is, too, a clear gain in vocal power, represents the benefit the world reaped from music which lived long enough to accomplish this purpose, and then perished. The legacy it left to mankind was the group of principles for vocal culture with which we are familiar enough. But this mastery over voice was designed to be a means, and not an end. Nature had a task for her sons in the coming years. No achievement is ever lost. It is, on the contrary, a vantage ground for greater triumph. In the days of bel canto covered by Bach, Handel, Haydn, and Mozart, vocalists were asked to sing such music as was considered vocal. The task was a lighter one than mankind had to face later on. But the task served to secure the mastery over the voice we have already mentioned. Fortunately, the tendency of composers is to make vocal music more and more truly histrionic, so that it shall correspond more and more with the inflections of language, and the burden laid upon the vocalists of the future is so to carry out the directions of bel canto that nothing written by the composer, provided it be in any sense true to the thought which is in the words, shall be considered impossible by the singer. 
In all human work there will be limitations, but all musical intervals of any kind whatsoever which are rational and colloquially possible to the cultured man, and are therefore admissible, and which are on that account musically legitimate, shall be considered to be within the range of vocal possibility. On the other hand, refer composers to vocalists as to what they may consider vocal, and you fetter the composer's genius. This, then, is the new country which was opened up by the branch line of bel canto. Whatever a musician can write, a singer can, nay, he must, sing. The tyranny of the harmonious sound has, by musician and singer, been too long allowed to interfere with mental growth and freedom of treatment. He who would be master of his voice must therefore add quick, versatile perception and verbal elasticity to vocal agility, sonority, and charm. Further, this tyranny has been felt in another direction, and has put back the clock. If our leaders of musical and vocal thought had been less inclined to fetish worship, the state of oratorio work would not be so deplorable in London and New York today. Deplorable in regard to public support. Public interest in it is largely dormant, and is active only where fine chorus singing is the mainspring of interest. The reason for this moribund state of oratorio, in addition to the undue preference given by that frivolous class called society to opera, is the fact that an ecclesiastically dull and professionally harmonious atmosphere has spread itself over most of our performances. Oratorio is become oratorio-ish and conventional. Even church musicians have rebelled against Handel. Now, church singing may be excellent in church but it does not suit the stage. Very reverently be it said, yet very emphatically, that the treatment of the church liturgy, even by dignitaries, is by no means a model of supreme effectiveness. But this is not all. Clerical perfunctoriness has invaded the stage, and its influence on the performance of oratorio has been the reverse of beneficial. A cultured and serious artist may safely be trusted to preserve his sense of reverence when dealing with sacred and inspired themes. Dullness is not reverence, and all music, sacred and profane, demands verisimilitude. Take for example, once more, the manner in which Sims Reeves dealt with oratorio. He pictured it all. It was the personal, emotional, and subjective note, the result of vivid imagination and of true unity with his theme that made him unique and memorable. Vocal technique, together with true harmoniousness, he possessed in abundance. Nor was he ever at a loss for power to differentiate emotions as occasion required. It appears incredible that anyone, with this great singer's example before him, should pretend to believe that mere harmoniousness could have satisfied Handel, or that it could deal effectively with his works. Sims Reeves was a bel cantist, even as Handel was. Certainly, no one can deny that this non-committal method of oratorio singing and the approval bestowed upon it have paralyzed individual efforts for a lengthy period. The power of prejudice against verisimilitude in sacred music and the conventional predilection toward mere harmoniousness have held the field. In spite of the fact that human dramatic instinct has periodically revolted against their oppression, yet the rebellion has not become general. It may be that many fear for their future as singers, and will continue to do so until the day dawns when faith casts out fear. A sense of unreality, 
remoteness and pretense has been given to oratorio by pedagogic insistence of non-performers and theorists upon the statement that oratorio is not dramatic. Vocal progress has been checked in England by this contention, and oratorio solo singing has been to a great extent emasculated. The singer's art has suffered largely, even though we have had in our midst an authority like Signor Randegger, stoutly advocating the very opposite view for over half a century. Another contention which has narrowed the singer's and composer's outlook, thereby diminishing their power, awaits our notice at this point. Quote, it happens that the idealizing power of this mysterious art of tones resides in its sensuous beauty of line and color. End quote. Footnote. From Apthorpe's Opera Past and Present. This author's statement is either open to our objections or it is a platitude. In one sense, idealizing power does reside in sensuous beauty of line and color, so also does mind in gray matter, soul in body. End footnote. Now, musical beauty and ideality do not reside primarily in sensuous beauty of line and color, elsewhere a Sousa march on the same level as a Beethoven symphony, and all conductors and vocalists equally efficient. The fact that Pasquale Brignoli, quote, coolly drew tears from the eyes of his audience and produced frantic excitement, end quote, proves nothing, except that his art was of the tearful and frantic sort. Tears and frenzy are not the end of all things in art. The, quote, idealizing power of the vocalist's art, a branch of the, quote, art of tones, resides in something above its means of expression, its tools, so to speak. Many a color vocalist has lived to rue the day when he gave himself up to this kind of materialism, for it is that and nothing else and has had ample time to cool his heels in the morass of false intonation and premature vocal decay into which he has been drawn. Musical beauty and ideality of voice reside not primarily in the sensuous beauty of line and color, but in the power of developing an absolutely just correlation between the voice and the quick vision of the spiritual man. When that correlation is established, the voice proclaims what the soul sees, and intrinsic, ideal beauty is the result. If this be not so, then were all composers wrong, from Perry to Wagner. And if they, the composers, were and are wrong, there is but little hope that the vocal art ever could have been or ever can be right. The style and form of vocalists' utterance depend upon this, quote, sentimental thought of ours, that the source of the river is not the riverbed. Line and color will always be present in the vocal artist's work as a result of fine technique, but there will be more than the mere sensuous in that work. There will be a precipitate of psychic, architectonic, created thought. This, quote, mysterious art of tones exists for that, and depends on that kind of beauty for its life. Sims Reeves' picture of Sound and Alarm was as musically true as Job's picture of the war horse which scenteth the battle from afar, was and is poetically true. Reeves saw the scene mentally and painted it with his voice, even as the author of the Book of Job saw his ideal war horse and painted it in words. The effect of these words, one fancies, would be somewhat marred if their terseness were changed into 
The steed, which is nasally conscious of the aroma of polemical engagements from a distance, a sure diagnostic symptom of military, hippic, or equine quadrupedal sensibility. A mere flow of language would not have given effect to Job's effort any more than a succession of sustained notes, however harmonious in character, would have produced Sims Reeves' musical picture of sound and alarm, or The Enemy Said I Will Pursue. Subtle as this truth may be, singers must reckon with it, and must realize that the addition to or the subtraction of one word from Job's description would have ruined the verbal picture. So also, the addition of any false vocal quality, however harmonious, or the subtraction of any quality necessary for the presentation, would have ruined Sims Reeves' picture of a warrior crying sound an alarm. The direction of line and color depends on something outside of these, and that something, that principle, may be said to lie at the very root of the great creations of the world's composers from Bach to the present day. The musical power of inspired musicians depends upon their ability to reveal themselves, to project their originality through their music, and to stand out, accordingly, as Bach, Beethoven, and so on, and not as any other. All true composers feel that the music grows out of the situation and the words, and to them there is no other setting possible, at the time, than the one they transfer to their music paper. It is true, of course, that every effective vocal effort must be a sustained effort, which gives the line, and that the tone must be correlative to the word, which gives color and true harmony. The singer's case is practically on all fours with that of the composer, the only difference being that the medium, voice, is not the same. 